Our text this morning is Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, as we continue our journey with the Apostle Paul. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word, for the word of the Lord is authoritative. The word of the Lord is sufficient, and that is because the word of the Lord is completely without error. Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we come to you this morning because we need to hear from you in your word. Lord, we need hope. We need strength. And that comes from you. Your word teaches us of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of his mighty work that he performed on our behalf. That we can obtain that righteousness by faith. And so Lord, bless us this morning. And encourage us. Point us toward Jesus. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. This morning, Paul is continuing his argument that justification is not by works, but is rather by faith, and he is doing it using Abraham. We have seen Paul tell us that the righteousness that we need comes from God himself in Christ. And he is taken as an example, that great Old Testament hero, Abraham. And he showed that Abraham was not justified by works, but rather by faith. And in doing so, in the beginning of chapter 4, he used an historical argument. Paul reminded us that Abraham was not yet circumcised when he believed. That he had faith first... And that circumcision followed that. And now what Paul is going to do is show the fundamental difference between the law and the promise. It's all of the same theological theme. How does one become right with God? And there are these two competing principles, the law and the promise, works and faith. And Paul is going to continue to instruct us in this. As we look at this text, I'd like us to ask ourselves three questions. 
First, why not the law? After all, why couldn't we be saved by the law? Second, why faith? Why is it that faith is what brings justification and righteousness to us? And then third, faith in whom? That is, what kind of faith? Who is our faith in that brings this righteousness to us? Why not the law? Why faith? (coughs) And faith in whom? Let's start by looking at our first question this morning. Why not the law? Once again, Paul is using the Bible to make his point. He's going to show us that the first reason that the law doesn't save is the law cannot bring the inheritance to us. Look with me, if you would, at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And so Paul is drawing on the Bible, on the Old Testament, in order to make his point. We should not ever just skip over that. That as we see Paul making his definitive points, he is never shy about standing on the Bible, of teaching what the Bible teaches. And so he begins with this promise to Abraham. But actually the word here, promise, is in a sense a collective noun. It doesn't always seem that way in English, but I think here it is because As Paul speaks of the promise to Abraham, he's really referring to several promises that God has given to Abraham. The reiteration of promises, the expansion of promises. God has given promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, and Genesis 13, and chapter 15, and again in chapter 17, and then as well in chapter 22. And all of these promises culminate in what Paul calls the ultimate promise to Abraham, that he would be heir of the world. Because you see, all of these promises that came to Abraham were really just subsumed under the one great promise, the promise of the Messiah. The promise that Abraham, through his descendants, would be a blessing to all the nations. That in him, all nations would be blessed. And Abraham understood this to be the coming of the Messiah. He believed on the Messiah. And so this is the promise that Paul is speaking about. That's why he can talk about Abraham being the heir of the world. This is a pretty tall order promise. So what does it mean then to be an heir? Paul uses this term throughout his writings to describe what the believer receives from God. The inheritance that is described in the scripture comes to the believer because of the believer's relationship to Jesus Christ. That's because it's Jesus who is the Son. Christ deserves the inheritance. He has fulfilled everything that the Father has tasked him with. And so God has promised Abraham that he would be an heir through his seed, an inheritance beyond all his imagining. It would come to him through Christ. So how does one get to be the heir? 
Now, the very nature of an inheritance is such that you cannot obtain it by works. So, for example, I might decide that what I really need to do is to make my best effort to try to learn everything about Windows software and to be the best computer maker I could be in the hopes that Bill Gates might make me his heir. That would make my life a lot easier. No more college bills to worry about. No more retirement funds to need to invest in. If I were Bill Gates' heir, my money problems would be solved forever. But of course, I'm not holding my breath for that. And you shouldn't either. Because we both know that I can't make Bill Gates make me his heir because of things I do. That's not how inheritance works. An inheritance is something you give away. The one who gives the inheritance decides who will obtain that inheritance. You don't place a claim on an inheritance. I can't walk up to the Gates home next week and knock on the door and say, by the way, I think you owe me a couple of billion. I've been working really hard here. I'm not even sure he'd come to the door. He'd probably have his butler slam the door in my face. But you see, this is sometimes how we view an inheritance, but it's not biblical and it's not even commonsensical. The way we earn an inheritance is not by not earning it at all. The whole history of mankind shows and makes clear that no one is capable of earning this kind of inheritance. Not even Abraham. He himself fell short. He sinned. He failed to do what God had commanded him to do. The whole history of Israel is a history of failure and falling short. And all we need to do is look at people around us, or even, yes, in the mirror to see that we fall short. Paul is taking us back, in summary, to what he's already been saying, that the only way to receive the promised blessing is by faith. The law can't bring us an inheritance because we do not deserve it. But Christ does deserve it. The only way that we can inherit is by receiving what Christ gives to us. By faith. Paul then goes on to explain why the law cannot bring this inheritance to us. It's not just that there is a different way that God chose not to implement. It's not as if God was thinking one day, well, you know, salvation could be by works. They could inherit by works or they could inherit by grace. I wonder which one I'll pick. Oh, I think I'll pick by grace. No, that's not how it goes. Instead, it is really about the nature of an inheritance, and the nature of the law and of works. It's the law principle that gets in the way here. The law principle actually makes the promise of God useless, Paul says. Vain and empty. Now again here, we need to understand what Paul means by the use of law here in verse 13. As we've seen over and over again, Paul can use the word law in different ways. Now, there is a hint here, if you know Greek, or your pastor explains it to you, that the word law here does not have the definite article in front of it. It's not the law, actually, in Greek, in verse 13. It's just law. And and we often do that when we speak of a principle or a generality, we take the the away from it and we generalize. But I don't think you need to know Greek 
to get Paul's point here. I think the English works just fine. You see, what Paul is saying here is, is that the law, the law principle of obedience, is what goes against the promise. He's not talking about the law, the Mosaic law. And the reason we know this is because he's talking about Abraham. And you recall from last week that we remembered that Genesis 12 comes before Genesis 17. Well, here's some more chronology. Genesis comes before Exodus by 400 some odd years. So Paul can't be talking about the specific Mosaic code Because that wasn't even around when Abraham was given the promise. And yet Abraham is still pointed to the promise and not law. Because you see, the law principle transcends the book of Leviticus, the book of Numbers, the book of Deuteronomy. The law principle is in us that we think we can do what God has commanded. Now, the Mosaic Code is the best expression of this principle. It is very detailed. It has a detailed set of requirements and punishments. And so the Mosaic Code is the best illustration of this principle of law. But the principle of law is bound up in our hearts. And so I don't want you to look at this text and to pit one part of the Bible against another. Some look at this and say, oh, well, the... Abrahamic administration is different than the Mosaic administration. That in Abraham's time, people were saved by faith. But in Moses' time, people were saved by works. And then, of course, they changed it up again and they went back to faith. No. Paul is telling us that we're always saved by faith. Because he's telling us no one can ever be saved by law. No one can ever inherit according to the law. What Paul is saying to us is something that's I think quite easy to understand. If we try to live by the law principle, hoping to get the promise by what we've done, we actually empty the promise of any meaning. What would be the result if God had said, I promise to save you if you do such and such? That promise would be worthless. All that it would depend upon is what we do. It would be empty to promise something where you require obedience. But Paul has already shown us that no one can keep the law. So Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. Law means failure. Therefore, if the promise had been made through the medium of the law, what God was giving, as it were, with the right hand, he would be taking back with the left. There would have been no promise at all. It would have had no value whatsoever. So Paul is telling us that if we want the promise, we have to give up and abandon the law. He wants us to see this through the clarity of the fact that inheritance is by faith and that works is a completely contradictory principle. You cannot mix the two. They are mutually exclusive. The same is true of the law and promise. It is also true of works and faith. If we choose law and works, we know that we have to set aside the faith and promise. The promise cannot operate under law. 
it passes away. It becomes void. Now, we need to hear this. Because so often we want to mix the two, don't we? We want to work, but we want God to grade on a curve. Easy for us. We want the credit, but we want credit for something we don't deserve. You see, we want to mix these principles of law and faith, works and grace. And Paul tells us you can't have it that way. You have to abandon the law, you have to abandon works, and you have to run to the promise and to faith. Now he presses that point home with a third problem from the law. And that is that the law brings wrath. So far from bringing blessing and inheritance, instead the law brings wrath to us. Look at verse 15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, why does the law bring wrath? Well, the basic principle of the law is this, isn't it? Do this, and if you don't do it, this is the punishment that follows. That's the way the law works. Think about every law you know. When was the last time you got a check in the mail from the state for obeying the speed limit? Or how about, have you gotten a bonus at work for not stealing? No, I don't think so. Because that's not how the law works. The law tells us what we must do, and if we fail, we are punished. All the law can do is condemn. It has no power to enable a person to do its commands. And that's what's so hard about trying to live according to the law. It's not just that breaking the law brings consequences, but the law itself is no help in obeying. Now, this doesn't mean that the law is evil. It's not the law's fault that we sin. Paul's going to make this point in great detail in Romans 7. Let me put it to you this way. Don't blame the mirror if your face is dirty. It's not the job of the mirror to wash you. It's the job of the mirror to reflect the state of your face. So what is this wrath, then, that the law brings? Paul gives us an answer in this odd phrase in verse 15. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, when we first hear this, we might think, well, perfect, get rid of all the laws. If there's no law, there can be no transgression, there can be no sin, we'll be perfect, right? No, that's not what Paul's saying. What Paul is doing is, in a summary form, just telling you what he's been telling you in chapters 1 and 2. He's saying there's a sequence. The law exists. We transgress the law. That transgression provokes God's wrath. That's what happens every time. And if we think about it, our nature shows this. This is the way we operate with law. Right? Let me appeal to the moms for a moment here. I bet almost every single mother here has done something like this. You've got a young child, and you put at dinner a vegetable in front of them, maybe say broccoli. And the child doesn't want to eat the broccoli, doesn't want to pick up the broccoli. So what do you do? You say something like, don't eat that broccoli. No, 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 I don't want to see you touch that broccoli. Don't you dare eat that broccoli in front of me. And what does the kid do? Picks up the broccoli and eats it. 
Why? Because she told him not to. And that's what's bound up in his heart. You see, that's the way that we look at the law. We want, we see a law, we want to transgress it. I mean, to be honest, when we drive around, do we really think about whether or not we're going to drive over the speed limit or whether we're going to drive just enough so that no one will stop us with a radar gun? Right? This is how it works. Our sinful nature delights in transgressing, in breaking boundaries, in sin. And so we can't count on the law to bring this promised blessing because it actually does the opposite. It eliminates the promise and it brings in its opposite, wrath. But Paul doesn't leave us without hope. His point is not to make us despair entirely, but to make us despair of the law. And so he is driving us now to our only hope, to faith. So in verse 16 he picks up, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. You see, that is why it depends. For this reason, what I've just said, the fact that the law doesn't work and can't work and will never work, that's why it depends on faith. You have to turn to faith. Because faith and the promise go together. Now, this shouldn't surprise us, because the promise is a gracious act of God. He did not have to give us the promise. Think about the example of Abraham. There was nothing that made God call Abraham. There was nothing that made God give this promise to him. And apart from grace, the path is always law, transgression, wrath. But grace breaks that cycle. Faith and grace belong together. Faith works with grace. Now this makes sense because the law tells us to do. It points to our behavior, to our actions. You can't think about the law without thinking about works. But grace is the unmerited favor of God. We might even say better, the demerited favor of God. It's the favor of God that we emphatically do not deserve. Grace can't have anything to do with works. It's the exact opposite. It's getting what we don't deserve. Now, how can we possibly receive this promise that God has given by grace? The only way, Paul says, is by faith. By believing in the one who has promised. By giving up all of our works so we can embrace grace. There is a reason why faith is consistent with the promise. It is the only way we can get ourselves out of the way and receive what we do not deserve. Now, there are many so-called gurus today who will tell you you need to look inside yourself to find your best you, to find your own happiness. Don't believe them. The Bible tells us not to look inside ourselves. The Bible tells us to look outside of ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, who did what we cannot do and who purchased for us in his life and his death what we could not obtain. That gives us hope. I don't focus on my failure. I don't focus on my needs, on my shortcomings. I focus on Jesus. And I know he's already accomplished everything. 
Now in verse 16, Paul says, not only that it depends on faith so that the promise can rest on grace, but he also says that it depends on faith so that the promise is guaranteed. Guaranteed to all his offspring, Paul says. And so faith also guarantees the promise. So even if you disagree with Paul from what he said earlier, and you shouldn't, but if you do, if you disagree with Paul that the standard of the law is perfection, absolute perfection, yet there is still another reason to cling to faith instead of to the law. And this again gets back to the principle of the law. Those who seek to be right with God by obedience to the law have one key commonality. They all make perfection something that is not required. Because they know they can't reach it. This makes sense. We have that age-old saying, right? Nobody's perfect. But even if we granted that you didn't need perfect obedience, how much obedience is needed? How much of the law do you need to keep to receive that blessing? 99%? 80%? 65%? 51%? How much? How will you know? Even if we admit that there's a sliding scale, you can never be sure if you've done enough. And this is not just abstract theology. This is how every theological and philosophical system operates. There is absolutely no assurance of salvation because I never know if I'm over the hump. I never know if I've fulfilled, if I've passed the test, if I've done what's sufficient. I have no way of knowing ever. And as a matter of fact... Every other theology and philosophy outside of the scriptures doesn't want you to have assurance. It tells you assurance is bad. That you need to be afraid. You need to be afraid so you do more. And when you think you've done enough, do some more. And when you've done some more on top of some more, guess what? Get some more. And do some more. What kind of a life is that like? It's like living on a treadmill, and not only can you never get off, somebody's behind you constantly cranking up the speed. There's no hope in that. But the beauty of faith is that it receives the sure and certain promise of God. It doesn't depend on our standard. It doesn't depend on our obedience. What the promise of God depends on is God, who is sure in His word, He never lies, and who is sure in his actions. He is always powerful enough to bring about his will. So this morning, let me ask you, do you struggle with doubt? Are you worried that you may not love God enough, or read your Bible enough, or obey enough? The solution is to give up on any form of works and to trust in Christ by faith. He has done enough. He has earned a sure salvation. He has given you His sure promise. The final thing that Paul tells us about faith in verse 16 is that faith opens the promise up to all. To all His offspring. Now this would be of great importance to the mixed church in Rome with Jews and Gentiles. But it's also, quite frankly, of great importance to us today. Because the vast majority of us would be what Paul would term Gentile Christians. 
And so we want to know that we can obtain the promise of Father Abraham. And Paul tells us that faith brings that promise to all. That Abraham is the father of all who believe, he says. Abraham is the father of all, all who share his faith. If somehow the promises were limited to those who kept the law, then there would be an obvious limitation. And it wouldn't even just be those who kept the law. Others would be left behind. Those who never got the full expression of the law. Now, how would someone be expected to keep all of the law when he didn't even know what the law was? It's hard enough to do what we know. But how can we anticipate what we're supposed to do? Now remember, the standard of the law is perfection. There is no lessening. Now, we all like it when we're driving a bit over the speed limit. Well, maybe you don't, so this is a theoretical exercise. So, theoretically, when you're, if someone were driving over the speed limit, we all like it. When the police officer comes up and someone were to say, I'm sorry, officer, I didn't realize this was a 35-mile-an-hour zone. And if the officer says, well, that's okay. I'm just going to give you a warning. You didn't know. But that's, that's not how the world works, is it? You try that with other things. Officer, I'm sorry, I didn't realize robbing a bank was against the law. I thought it was just a convenient place for me to go in and take as much money as I wanted. I'm sorry, officer, I didn't realize it was against the law to shoot someone. I just thought I could do what I wanted. What does the law say? No, ignorance of the law is no excuse. And so if we don't know all of the law, how can we keep all of the law? Again, not just the major parts of the law or the highlights of the law, but the standard is all of the law being kept to perfection. The good news is that faith works on the exact opposite principle. It's available to everyone who hears the promise. There is no working involved at all. And so Paul makes sure we know that the faith principle applies to everyone. First, to the Jews, the adherent of the law, in verse 16. And then second, to the Gentiles, to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Now in verse 16 here, Moses is... Paul is referring to Moses' law. The article is there. You can trust me on that. But, But it also makes sense because he's speaking to the Jews, those who know the Mosaic law. And what he's saying is the faith principle applies to both of you. He's really just summarizing again what he's been saying for the past three and a half chapters. Paul set forth that all were condemned under sin. And that those who'd followed the Mosaic Code, those who tried to follow a moral code, those who didn't know either, all of them failed. And now he says, God has opened up salvation in the same way to everyone. Just as everyone is condemned by sin, so salvation is open to everyone by faith. Whosoever comes will not be cast out. That is why the promise to Abraham is that he would be the father of many nations. As Paul points out in verse 17. Now there is one last final and brief point for us to see. 
Paul has told us that the law cannot save, that it only brings wrath. And he's told us that faith is the means that we lay hold of the promise of God. And now he gives us a picture of what that faith looks like. Now notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't talk about the strength of faith. Now we might expect that, right? Paul, just how much faith do I need to have to be saved? Because this is our tendency. We want to do, even with faith, we want to do. And so we want to know, how much faith do we need? But you'll notice Paul doesn't talk about that at all. What Paul talks about is the object of faith. He says that Abraham believed in God. And he believed in God not just because of the content of the promise, but because of the character of the promiser. God had given him a great promise, but it was because Abraham knew God could keep his promise that he believed. Abraham had faith in God. Now let me see if I can give you an illustration of this. A few weeks ago, my car broke down. Now, thankfully, I was only about 20 feet from a parking lot. But a hose blew, and that caused all of my coolant to empty out, and my water pump went, as well as some other things inside. Now, I was able to get the car parked. I was able even to start the car back up again. Now, what do you think would have been the result if I would have said, I have tremendous faith that this car is going to get me back to Katie? I'm getting back on I-10 right now. No one believes stronger than me. I love this car. I have faith. No one has more faith than me in this. I'm going to get home. I don't think I'd have made it 15 feet. Right? But let's fast forward to the repairs done on the car. The coolant replaced, the water pump put back in, a new hose, everything fixed, checked, double-checked. I pick up the car... I come and I go home. Now what happens if I say, ooh, this car failed on me. I'm not sure I should go to work because I don't know if the car is going to make it. I have, I have so little faith. I have so little faith that this will happen. Does that mean the car is going to fail? No. What's important is the object of the faith. I could have tremendous faith in a broken down car and it's going to get me nowhere. And I could have the smallest faith in a perfectly serviceable car and it will drive me all over town. You see, that's why it's not about the amount of faith you have. It's about the one you have faith in. Now, isn't that a comfort? You don't have to worry about how much faith you have. You have to worry about how big a God we have faith in. And that's no worry at all. Because God can fulfill His promises. We can have faith in His promises even when we are weak. Even when we are faltering. Because it's God who fulfills his promise, not our faith that fulfills his promise. And so we see this here in the way Paul describes Abraham's faith. He says he has faith in God who gives life to the dead. Now Abraham lived this. He was called upon after he was given all of these promises to take his son Isaac up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. And I think we often have a picture that as Abraham and Isaac were walking up the mountain, Abraham was saying to himself, God's going to send a ram. God's going to send another sacrifice. I'm not going to have to do this. 
And the reason we think that is because God did substitute a ram. But do you know what's interesting? That's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible actually tells us that Abraham was not expecting a substitute, that he was absolutely expecting he was going to have to kill his son. So why would Abraham do this? It's because Abraham had the promise of God that all nations would be blessed not only from Abraham, but through Isaac would the promise be fulfilled. And so Abraham did a mental faith calculation. He said, God's made this promise. God can never lie. God can do whatever he can to keep a promise. If the only thing he could do is raise Isaac from the dead, that must be what he's going to do. Because even though I've never seen somebody get raised from the dead, even though I've never known anybody that gets raised from the dead, it is much more likely for someone to be raised from the dead than God to be a liar. We know this because Hebrews tells us this in chapter 11. Before faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is the God that we believe in. The second thing we learn about this God who promises is in the second half of verse 17. He is the God who calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, now what does this mean? It means that faith faith trusts God and trusts what he says, not because we find it believable, but because we know the one who's doing the speaking. Faith doesn't say things like, I can't believe in a God who would do that. No, faith instead says, I believe and I trust God, therefore what he says is true. And so God calls things into existence that do not yet exist. Now this could refer to God's great act of creation, making all things of nothing. But I think it's actually something more than that. I think what it means is, is that God has determined something. And he has spoken of it. But it's not yet been fulfilled or in existence. But yet it is so certain of fulfillment that we believe it already exists. We see this in the language of the Old Testament. There is a thing in the Old Testament in Hebrew called the historic prophetic future. And what that means is, things will be prophesied, thus saith the Lord. And although they're future, they'll be described in the present or even the past tense. Because it's so certain of fulfillment. We never doubt what God is going to do. If God calls something into existence, if God tells us his will, it will come to pass. I'll give you one example from the scriptures. Jesus tells us that he has prepared a place for us. How many of you have seen it? Lived in it? Walked around in it? I tell you right now, that place is more certain than that chair there. Because God has declared it. He is the one who speaks, and things that are not yet in existence are. He is the promiser. So, 
We can trust in the Lord. And we can believe the promise just as if it were right before us. Do you trust the Lord this morning? Do you hear His promise? Faith in the true and living God is your only hope, but it is the surest hope you will ever experience. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ now and you will be released from the treadmill of the law and know the sweetness of the promise of God. Let's pray.